Job 38, 40 uh, through 40, verse 5. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is? on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land and make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds stick, together fat, stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. 
they go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you tie him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who, answered, oh, he who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Lord, we, we read a text like this, and we are drawn into your magnificence. And Lord, may we ponder that as we consider the fact that you desire to use these two chapters to affect us, to draw our attention to who you are, to see our circumstances in light of your majesty and your creation and ultimately to rest in you, our sovereign, mighty, gracious, and loving God. Give us wisdom, we pray. And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we don't have, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, what we are not, would you make us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. A little over a month before he died, 
the famous atheist Jean-Paul Sartre declared that he so strongly resisted the feelings of despair that he would say to himself, I know I shall die in hope. Then in profound sadness, he would add, but hope needs a foundation. Throughout the book of Job, we find Job struggling to come to grips with his suffering and he's often slipping into despair. At times we see him express some wonderful insights about who God is that he's holding on to. And yet, moments later, he's quickly reminded of his present suffering and the grief that has come because of his loss. And what little hope and confidence he has is replaced with a renewed despair. And this is often the way it is in times of suffering. Confidence in God, despair. Trying to trust in God, fighting with hope. We go through these seasons. So hope is something we all long for, especially when we're going through times of struggle. We want to see the light at the end of the tunnel because we know if we can see the light, there's a reason to press on. But if there's no light, it's more terrifying, it's more daunting, and there is a hopelessness. Yet hope must be grounded in what is true. It must be settled on someone or something that is trustworthy, the famous Old hymn reminds us of what the scriptures teach. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In other words, the, 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 the system. But it's Christ I must trust. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We've sung that probably many times and and had some understanding of it, but if you're Job in this moment, there's a need for hope, and then there's a need for a foundation, and there's a need for an understanding of where that hope is from. So Job, unfortunately, knows very little of the person and work of Christ. We do find seeds of understanding as he discloses his heart's desire. If you remember, he recognizes and he longs for a mediator, for an advocate. He even cries out for a redeemer. And so there there seems to be the beginnings of an understanding that, that God has a plan, but he doesn't have the full understanding that we do. And although he is unaware of the hope that we have in Christ and his gospel, He does have hope in God. And in this text, what he has been longing and hoping for takes place. God finally shows up. Here in chapter uh, chapter 40 in verse four, God shows up, but what he shows up saying is maybe a little unusual. 
he identifies Job as a fault finder. A description of someone who reproves and corrects And God is identifying for us that he is fully aware of Job's arrogance and his accusations, that Job has made statements that call into question how God is governing the world, and in particular, the way that he has treated Job. So now God shows up to both humble Job as well as to give him hope. So this morning, As we look through our text, we want to be reminded that there is hope for the troubled fault finder in the midst of their suffering. And it's easy for us to say, yeah, Job, you fault finder, but we know that we're talking about us (laughs) because we are always struggling and asking questions and wondering whether this scenario is best. It's not hard for us to look at our trials and our suffering and to see times when in our own finite thinking we have concluded, if I were God, I would do things differently. You ever thought that? Of course you have. That we would not allow the suffering to last for so long, or that it would be so difficult, or that it would be so painful, or that it would be so devastating. It doesn't have to go that long. It doesn't have to be that intense. And when our thoughts don't line up with what God is doing, it's easy for us to question God, to get embittered about our circumstances, and even to throw in the towel. So, We would do well to consider this text this morning. We would do well to welcome God into our trial and to give him freedom to teach us. We would do well to listen to God's word in order to see God's wisdom and care for his children as they struggle to understand. And unlike chapters three through 37, where we have had to put our discernment caps on to figure out what is true and what is not true, what we have in these texts is God speaking. There's no question about what he's saying, whether it's right or it's wrong. He is speaking with the authority of heaven. Why? He's God. And so we are able to see now with confidence and with help to recognize what it looks like to go through suffering and to provide the kind of answers that we need. So first of all, let's consider God's surprising answer. And the first surprise is this. It's that the Lord has come, that the Lord has spoken. And what we're about to read is what Job has been longing for throughout this book. Job has been crying out, appealing to hear from the supreme judge in the supreme court of heaven. But his friend Eliphaz thinks that Job's cry is pointless. This is what he says. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Chapter five and verse one. And then Elihu just got done speaking to Job, and he says, basically, I don't know why you're spending so much time with this. The Almighty, we cannot find him. 
And of course, part of that is rooted in their understanding, their wrong understanding that God may be powerful, but he is distant. That he is almighty, but he's, he's not intimate with that creation. But Job cried out, chapter 23, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. And then behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Job's worst fears were that in his suffering that God had abandoned him. He feared that in the silence and isolation that he was experiencing, that God had let him down, that God had let him go. And we understand that because with silence, our minds wander, don't they? So Job had no awareness of the conversation that was going on between God and Satan. That God presented Job as a man of true faith and integrity that Job's suffering wasn't because of his sin, but because of his faith. So Job is an example for all faithful followers of of Christ who find themselves tested by the darkness and apparent absence of God. Here we're encouraged by the fact that the Lord has been present and the Lord has come. Oswald Chambers reminds us, a man up against things feels that he has lost God while in reality he has come face to face with him. So not only has the Lord come, this is the first surprise, but the second surprise is that it is Yahweh that has come. Now you may not get this necessarily just reading the English language, and I am no master in Hebrew, but I recognize that there's a difference going on here in chapters one and two. We are introduced to God by virtue of the name Yahweh. In chapters three, all the way through 37, the word or the title, the name that's given to describe God is El Shaddai, which means the Almighty. And it's a way of speaking of God as detached and distant. That would be El Shaddai, God Almighty. When El Shaddai is introduced in scripture, it is to show that when all hope is gone and all strength is exhausted, God Almighty will take over. It is a name that describes God exercising grace and care and virtue by uh, by virtue of his almighty power. But with Job's free friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the name El Shaddai does not convey the kind of grace and care that we we see with this title El Shaddai, but only of a detached, distant, and impersonal, but powerful God. So there are people that say, I believe in God, and I believe he's powerful. That's good, and that's true, but it's not enough. See, what Job needs is not a distant, detached, all-powerful God, but the sovereign, personal, gracious, and caring God. 
Not a distant God, but a present God. Not a detached God, but an intimately personal God. Not a powerful God alone, but a gracious, loving, and caring, powerful God. That is Yahweh. He is the covenant keeper. He is the one who exercises steadfast love for those who are his. And so what we have here, just by virtue of title, is God breaking through, God speaking now, but it's not just El Shaddai, it's Yahweh. And David Atkinson reminds us that, that barren, or how barren theology can become when it, it loses touch with the gracious heart of God, the personal closeness of the covenant Lord has given way to the distance of God's majesty and might. And friends, this is important for us. Because even as we go into a study with the men on the attributes of God, it's possible for us to think of God theoretically and think of God academically and think of God as powerful, but we lose the aspect of his personal relationship, his personal kindness, his personal interaction with his creation, in particular with us. And so we must never detach the fact that God is all-powerful from the truth that he is also sovereign and good. Now certainly when we're going through trial, suffering, one of the issues that we wrestle with is is God good? And he is. It's one thing to believe in a powerful God, but it's another thing to believe in a sovereign, powerful, gracious, and good God. So Yahweh has come. He's come and he's spoken. But Yahweh comes now not giving answers, but demanding answers. That is the third surprise. I mean, Job has been crying out to God for answers. When God speaks, he's not here to give answers, but he comes asking questions and demanding answers of Job. Notice what it says in verses two and following. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Kind of a summary of Job's statement. Then he says, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will, or you make it known to me. Job started out facing his ordeal in a most admirable way. If you remember all the suffering he went through, he, he concludes that God can give and take away as he sees fit. He, he concludes that it is God that can bring both good and evil, but as the story unfolds, Job is faced with the suffering of his friends and their distorted theology. That's the suffering that I'm talking about there, in addition to his isolation and the, the silence of God. And over time, Job begins to claim things that were an overreach. He complains and impugns God's justice. So Yahweh comes now to his struggling servant, in order to humble him. And I want to just point out to you that, that this text here has kind of a backdrop of a, a wrestling motif. 
There's a picture of a wrestling match going on here. And it, it begins in verse three where, where this expression from the lips of God is dress for action like a man. It's an expression that, that reveals that Job is being asked to enter into a combat with the Lord. It's also what we find at the end of this speech, chapter 40, verse two, and he says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? It's that word contend. Meredith Klein helps us here, saying the imagery of the divine challenge is drawn from the popular ancient sport of belt wrestling. The figure is especially suitable in this context because belt wrestling was used as an ordeal in court and it is by ordeal that Job's case is being settled. A trial by ordeal, it's kind of like that old thing, it's like, well, you two guys fight over it and whoever wins, that's who, who's right. This is kind of the, the picture here. They're going into combat. This is what Job was, was longing for, to actually combat with God and to have his, answer, his questions answered. But it is not God that is on trial. It's Job who's on trial. He goes expecting God to speak, to give him answers. But the tables are turned. God speaks, but he comes asking questions and demanding answers from Job. Think of this wrestling match, not where God is somehow body slamming Job into submission, but as him wrestling Job in such a way that he has him in a hold so that Job is willing to submit, to give up protesting, to give up contending, to give up his kind of challenge. It's like a, it's like a father who takes a young child to the doctor to get a shot. And that child goes in and they realize, they, they figure it out, same place, I know this, people are all dressed in these same outfits, they got funny shoes on and they have stuff around their neck and I know what happened last time and I'm gonna get poked with a needle. And so all of a sudden, child goes, Rah! and all they're thinking about is pain. They're not thinking about health. And so that child starts throwing this tantrum and a father comes into this child lovingly and grabs a hold of this child that's kind of you know, wailing around and splashing around and grabs that child and gets that child into a hold and whispers things in that child's ear of comfort and of help so that that child finally submits and, and, and releases the tension of that tantrum so that the doctor can actually come in or the nurse can come in and give the shot. It's that same kind of thing. This is not God being angry at Job and just kind of smacking him on the ground. This is God wrestling him down so that he can speak to Job and that Job will listen to him. God is seeking to comfort Job, to care for Job, and to correct Job's faulty thinking. He's seeking to humble Job, not humiliate Job.
This is a wonderful picture of, of our covenant-keeping God who deals with us in mercy. And so the surprise is that God has come, but it's Yahweh who's come, and not, that, not to give Job answers, but to ask questions and to demand answers of Job. That's, that's an important front-end setup of this speech. Now, we move from God's surprising answer to God's creative interrogation. Because from chapter 38, verses four, to chapter 39, verse 30, God takes Job on a journey through his creation. I've tried to kind of put this in perspective. Here's Job on the ash heap, there are his friends, and somehow God appears. We're not given the, the, the picture of exactly what that looks like, but now he's going to take Job on a journey to reveal to him uh, parts of his creation. It's like kind of you know, going to a natural history museum and you're gonna go into one room and this is the room where it all has to do with the earth. And then you go to the next room and it all has to do with the heavens. Then you go to the next room, it all has to do with the animal kingdom. That's kind of how this is broken up. It's, it's rough, it's not necessarily technically divided this way, but it seems that there's some order in the thinking here. And we don't have time to unpack all of these uh, these poetical sections of these, these animals or things that have been, have been listed, but I would encourage you to go back yourself after our time today and reflect on what is being said. But suffice it to say that God is saying to Job, Job, walk with me. Let me show you my wisdom revealed in my creation. I want you to discover that I am not your enemy. You have declared many things about me in your struggling rage that are wrong, so come with me as I take you step by step through my creation so that I can convince you of my goodness and my grace, and you can be freshly reminded of your ignorance and your arrogance. So God invites Job to marvel at his creation and respond to his questions. God is saying, in effect, Job, you and your three friends have been asking and answering the wrong question. Come and let me ask you the right questions, then let me hear your answer. So let's take a walk with God, looking over the shoulder as he speaks to Job. Now, Elihu prepared Job for this, didn't he? Chapter 37, verse 14, this is what he said. He says, stop, and I'll put in parentheses there, complaining, lamenting, arguing about your suffering, and consider the wondrous works of God. That's what we saw last week. And now God is taking him on his own personal tour. Wouldn't you like that? Maybe not in this circumstance, but. So this is clearly a very, the very theological therapy that Job needs to get him off of his ash heap. So we'll walk through here. First of all, there's what I'm calling just simply the earth, God's created earth. And notice here that there is the earth, there's the sea, there's the morning, there's the sunrise, which would be the sunrise, there's the underworld, and there's the light. Let's just highlight some of the things that are being said here. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases, uh, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So where were you when I created this earth? 
Who shut the sea in with its doors? This powerful, raging sea. Who controls that? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? In other words, are you the one who's in charge of when the sun rises and the sun goes down? Have you entered into the springs of the sea, verse 16, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Look at verse 18 at the end. Or have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And there's the light, verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? Verse 21, you know for you were born then and the number of your days is great. There's a little sarcasm here in what God is saying. But the point is he's trying to give Job an awareness of his creation, a particular that relates to the earth. And he's saying, where were you? Did you create this? Are you in control of all this? Then he moves to the heavens. In the heavens, we find the snow. Have you entered the storehouse of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? In other words, the the place where, where these things are reserved for those times of trouble, for those storms that may come. It's imagery here. Verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? He's talking here about the storm. Then he talks about the rain in verse 28. Has the rain a father or has, uh, or has begotten the drops of dew? In other words, who's behind the rain? Who actually creates the rain? Who gives birth to these things? And then he talks about the constellations. That Job looks up in the sky and he sees them and he says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mezroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Of course, the answer to the question is no, you don't know, Job. You don't. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you say to the clouds, it's time to rain now? No, but God's saying, I can. Why? Because I'm God. And then he moves from the heavens to the created animal kingdom. And here we have nine animals in particular that are identified. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey? What about the mountain goat? Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Are you in in, in charge of its cycle of, of, of giving birth? Are you in control of the months? Are you in control of the time when that, that uh, mountain goat gives birth? No, but I am. The next two creatures in God's creation that are creatures that that will give man great difficulty if they're trying to control them. Verse five, who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? What about the wild ox? Is the wild ox, verse nine, willing to serve you? Will he spend the night in your manger? No, he's wild. He's gonna fight you all the way. But I can control him. Then there's the ostrich. 
I mean, God's been serious, has been walking Job through this. And you can just imagine as God is speaking now, a smile is coming upon his face. Let me remind you of the ostrich. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? I mean, just think about this. Here's the ostrich, you know. You have a peacock, comes out, it's like, look at my feathers. I am a wonder to behold. The ostrich goes, right? Well, I don't know what sound it makes, right? But it has these little wings, and they're like, there's nothing attractive about those wings. Uh, just keep reading here. For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that the foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her to forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Let's take this in. God is saying, I'm going to create a bird with wings that flap vigorously but cannot fly. Just think about it. I'm sure you have thought about this. God, why did you create an ostrich? A bird with wings that can't fly. It doesn't make any sense. Birds are supposed to do what? Fly. I mean, that's in our thinking, right? But not only that, this bird is not very bright. By divine design, that's what we're told here. She forgets wisdom, we're told. She has no share in understanding. She leaves her eggs where they can be trampled and crushed. But not only that, an ostrich is fast. Now, for some of you older generation, I know this is not an ostrich, but you guys remember Roadrunner? Why is it that a bird with wings is so fast? Especially when that bird cannot fly. This is all humorous that God would create such a creature. A commentator says this, from the sublime to the ridiculous, it's hard to argue that this hilarious sketch of the ostrich serves any solemn didactic purpose. It is what it is, a silly bird because God made it so. Why? This comical account suggests that amid the profusion of creatures, some were made to be useful to men, but some are there just for God's entertainment and ours. I mean, you just look at creation, and some, there's some beast, you're just like, wow, that's incredible. And then you look at a sloth. Look, if, 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 I were, if I were a sloth, I'd be terrified. Oh, look, you know, here comes, here comes the predator. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There's something humorous about that. And yet God creates animals for his pleasure and enjoyment 
and to give us pleasure. So God is saying to Job, listen, if you don't understand why I made the ostrich, then how can you begin to understand my purpose for your life? How are you going to grasp and perceive the mystery of how I govern the world that I created? And then he moves from the, this ridiculous picture of the ostrich to this magnificent picture of the war horse. Just listen to this. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. His, he paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He's not intimidated by battle. He loves it. He laughs at the fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! It's time to go! Ready for battle! Here we come. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Job, are you in control of this beast? Because I am. Then he draws his attention to the hawk. Is it by your understanding the hawk soars? And then verse 27, the eagle. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? So what is God seeking to impress on Job? Let's think through this a little bit here. First of all, the first thing he wants to impress on Job, I think, is the wisdom and the goodness of God's sovereignty. All of these illustrations are meant to teach Job and us about the sovereignty and wisdom and goodness of God over all. God wants Job to pause and to reflect and to think deeply and unhurriedly about all God has created and sustains and that all of it reveals his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his goodness. So God is saying to Job, where were you? Who was it that did this? Have you been present or done these things? Let me know the answer, Job. How can you question me? How can you charge me? How can you accuse me? How can you contend with me? How can you argue with me? Secondly, Job is revealing Job's need for humility. See, all this is meant to humble Job of his arrogance and to reveal to Job his ignorance. So Job, if these mysteries exist and they are now obvious to Job, how can you call me to account for the way I govern the world and your life? The ostrich may appear purposeless to you, but how can you assess me by your limited, ignorant, finite human wisdom? How can you critique me for what you cannot perceive? You weren't there, but I was. You don't know, but I do. You can't control, but I have it all in hand. Now, not only did he disclosed the wisdom and goodness of his sovereignty or Job's need for humility, but there's something else. It's, it's a theme that is underlying all this and you may or may not have caught it. But in all of this, there is this discussion about the presence of evil in God's good creation. 
In other words, from the perspective of Job's three friends, there's, there's evil, and if, if you're suffering, it's because of evil, and there's blessing, and if you're living you know, a good life, it's because of blessing. And there isn't, there isn't room for evil in this good creation that God has, has established. So the theme of evil in God's good created order is present. Let me invite you to go back to chapter 38 and verse four. And now we're gonna kind of press in a little bit on these texts. When the universe was created, the morning stars and the sons of God sing and shout for joy. Creation is a good thing, and it is to be celebrated, right? God, in his power, in his magnificence, created the world with all of the beauty that creation reveals. I mean, there's places around this world you can go, it's just like, wow, just amazing, right? And in the Bay Area, we're kind of like, okay, you know, oh, there's Yosemite down the road. Eh, no big deal. Yeah. Just wow, you just look at God's creation, even his fallen creation, and it's powerful, right? But enter in the raging and unpredictable darkness of the sea, verses eight through 11. Just notice what it says here. Who shut in the sea with its doors when the, it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and there shall your proud waves be stayed. After the sea, we are introduced then also to the wicked in the next few verses, verses 12 through 15. Notice there in verse 13, it says that I might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked may be shaken out of it. Look at chapter six, uh, at verse 16 through 18. Here God is speaking about the place of the dead. God knows that place. Have you entered the springs of the sea have, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? See, there are three very important lessons from these verses that we need to learn about God's wisdom and the place of evil in God's creation. Here's the first one. The first one is evil has a limit. We go back to verse 10. It is it's pictured here, the, 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 the evil is pictured here as, 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 a, um, as the sea. And it, it's pictured as, as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, well contained in its playpen, verse 10 and following, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and, and said, thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. In other words, when, when there is evil, God has put limits on that evil. That make sense? The sea is not just out there doing its own thing without being contained by God. Secondly, there is a place for evil in this created order. The sea is both restrained and protected by God. It is shut in. It's not dried up. See, we would say, well, if the seas storm, then let's get rid of the seas because we don't want anything bad to happen to people. God says, no, I've created the seas, but I have shut them in. They're like this baby in a playpen. So in some strange way, Christopher Ash says, and in some, strange, some wonderful way, even disorder has a place in God's order. 
third thing is this, evil will one day, one day be destroyed. And this is what we find in verses 12 through 15. The wicked will be shaken out of it. Their light is withheld. Their uplifted arm is broken. So even in God's good creation, there is a divine placement and acceptance of evil, of bad things, but he is in control even of all of that. And for someone who's going through suffering, who's saying God wouldn't let bad things happen to me, has to wrestle with the fact that God does allow bad things to happen. It is part of his creation. Again, Christopher Ash helps us out here. So God has set before Job a deep and penetrating portrait of the fundamental structure of the universe, a cosmos that is deeply and intimately good, a cosmos in which there is a necessary place for evil, and yet in whose structure the final destruction of evil is foreshadowed. This universe is deeper by far than the two-dimensional idea of the universe on which Job has been brought up and that still obsesses his comforters. Here is a universe in which the ugliness of evil is part of the creation of God and will ultimately serve the glory of God. So all of this is meant to humble Job of his arrogance. So instead of getting answers, Job gets questions. But those questions are to draw Job out. Those, those questions are not to body slam him, but to help him think through why he has been saying what he's saying and to change his perspective. And that's why we come now from these creative interrogation, all these questions, to God's penetrating question. There's one following question now that he begins uh, to say, and this is chapter 40, verses one and two. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. This is no small question. It's, it's rooted in what God has just revealed to Job. God uh, addresses Job and says, he who argues with God, let him answer. God is saying to Job, this is serious, Job. You've found fault with the Almighty. You've argued with me. You've said uh, wrong things about me. And because I love you, you must answer me. So answer me. What will you say? What can possibly come out of your mouth that will be worthy of a response? I think if I were in Joe's situation, I wouldn't be able to speak either. Having taken in God's creation and seen his majesty and his sovereignty and his power. And it's a reminder of Psalm 1-5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They'll stand before God in the sense of they'll appear before him but they'll have nothing to say. Fault finders and those who argue with God will not be able to stand. And then we see Job's ultimate um, humbling realization. And uh, for sake of time, I just want you to notice two responses that are in this text. He says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And these two responses then are this. Job recognizes his smallness. Have you ever stood at the bottom of a skyscraper? 
I'm talking about a really, really tall one. And, and you, you, you just see this, this mass of, of, of metal and cement and windows, and it's just going way, way up. And you just you feel so insignificant against this big monstrosity of man's creation. God has taken Job on a journey of his creation. And Job needs to be reminded of his smallness, of his insignificance. And so in the towering presence of God, Job is overwhelmed and made fully aware of that smallness. If you remember in chapter 25, Bildad had called Job a maggot and a worm. And now Job understands how true that is. But unlike Bildad's distant, detached God, who thinks so lowly of Job, Job now understands his smallness, his wormness in the hands of a loving, caring, and sovereign God. But he still sees his smallness. Now, not only does he see his smallness, he also is silent. It's not that Job doesn't say anything. That's not the point here. He does say something, doesn't he? But his words do express that he is at a loss to say anything worthwhile. All his, his past arguing and his protests that he gave to his friends, the way he was going to appear before God, and, and the arguments that he was going to bring mean nothing now because he is in the presence of God and he is in awe of his majestic power and, 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 and being. And so he puts his hand on his mouth. It's a gesture of, of deference and respect. And he proceeds not to speak any further. And that expression spoke once or twice. That formula simply means this. I have spoken once too many times already. I have already said more than I should. And so friends, there's something happening to Job, isn't there? There's some movement going on. These, these two confessions that he is small and that he, he'll be silent They're the result of listening to God and his revealed word and the picture that he has painted in front of him. And he's not repentant yet, but he's moving in the right direction. He's not arrived, but there is significant movement that is moving him to that place where he's ultimately going to repent a little bit later in the story from his constant questions and his demands and his charges and his fault finding and his arguing, he moves now to conviction, to humility, and to appropriate confession. But did you notice what happened? God has not given Job an answer to his repeated why questions. No answer, no apology, no hint about Satan's wager, no apparent of Job's struggle, even. Now, friends, doesn't that strike you as strange? In our own human wisdom, I think what we would do is we would say, hey, hey, Job, come here. Let's, let's walk for a little bit. Let me, let me tell you the big picture of what's going on here. See, you know, God, God was approached by Satan, and he's, God said, you know, have you considered Job, he's such a faithful brother, and God has allowed all this thing. You know, in other words, we, we want to we give information because that information is somehow going to help you think through why you're going through what you're going through. That's our human approach to things. That is not how God approaches this at all. What this text is screaming to us is this, that our hope is not found in knowing, but in trusting. 
Job wants to know. And God is saying, look, you can't control this. You didn't create all this. You didn't do all this. I do. Do you think I don't have this in hand? And for, for us, this is a hard pill to swallow. We want to know. We need to know. We've amassed countless resources to figure out you know, the knowledge that we need to understand and to, to, to make sense of it all. Let me read what Doug O'Donnell says here to help us. Throughout the drama, Job didn't question God's power, but rather his seeming indifference. But now Job submits to God by acknowledging that the Lord is lovingly involved in the operations of an exceedingly complex universe. What Job now comprehends is that God and his mysterious providence are too wonderful to comprehend and that human perceptions of justice are not the scales upon which the righteousness of God is weighed. What he finally grasps is that God has an inescapable purpose in whatever he does, even if that inescapable purpose is never revealed to the the creature um, it affects. What Job finally saw clearly is that he could not see clearly. Right? His intellectual problem remains unsolved but unimportant. For in the midst of extreme pain, Job is spiritually cured by the revelation of God, and that is enough to heat the coal of his human heart on the coldest, darkest night of his soul. What Job saw clearly is that he could not see clearly, and as a result of that, he simply needed to lean into God. We might demand to know the truth, but As one person has said famously in a movie, we can't handle the truth. But we need something better than the truth. And what's better than the truth is the author of the truth, and that is God himself. One commentator rightly explains, part of the discovery is to see the suffering itself as one of God's most precious gifts, to withhold the full story from Job, even after the test was over, keeps him walking by faith, not by sight. He does not say in the end, now I see it all. He never sees it all. He sees God. And see, this is, this is important for us to shift, to shift our focus. It's a Godward focus, not a human, man-centered focus. Let me just briefly walk you through three concluding thoughts here. Number one, I want us to consider what God is exposing. He's exposing some things in Job. That he's self-centered, he's just life is all about him. This is what happens many times when we're going through suffering. Our whole world now is about us and what we're going through, right? Negativity, his view about God, and then his, his ignorance ultimately, that he has a limited understanding of the way the world works, in particular how God is ordering that world. What is God exposing about you through the trial and suffering you're going through? It's an important question. Secondly, what is God expressing? As I mentioned before, hope is not found in knowing but in trusting. 
And he's saying, by virtue of taking Job through this wonderful um, catalog of creation in his animal kingdom, and he's saying, I, I am in control of these things. I created these things. You think you understand these things, but you don't. Yes, I am a mighty and powerful God, but I'm also a caring and gracious God. And friends, this is not exclusive to Job. It's also from the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. There was an awareness that that there is a control even of that. And even throughout God's word, we have statements that are mentioned. I'll just read Nehemiah 9.6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And there's more that we could turn to, and there's more that we could discover about what it says there, about how God is the one who is revealing himself and is in complete control of his creation. But then we move into this last one. I think this is really important because this gets us thinking now to whom is God pointing. This text looks forward to a future day when God's son will come. Now I want you to just put this in perspective. God's son became small through the incarnation. You know, we talk about the birth of Jesus, but we, what, this, what this, this text is screaming at us is that God, the creator of the universe, the one who's controlled the universe, the one who orders it, who understands it completely, had in his plan his very son to condescend into that creation and become one of us. It just gives us a picture of, of the kind of love that God would have to enter into this world. Philippians 2, have this mind in you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The magnificence of God and his creation, of course he's above it all, that he would become small in that creation for the sake of being our redeemer. And not only that, not only become small, but the son has spoken. You see, we have, we have more comfort for our souls than Job because God has spoken to us in a way that exceeds his gracious revelation to Job. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Christ has come, Christ has spoken, Christ has redeemed. Those are sweet words with powerful meaning for us. Lord, we've looked at a lot today. 
This is a, a text full of declarations and questions, drawing us in. And yet there's a man in this text who's wrestling through his suffering, seeking to understand what's, what the purpose is. And yet the answer given is not what he would expect. And Lord, sometimes, many times, most of the time, we don't have the answers. And often, Lord, you don't give us those answers. That is not you somehow being vindictive. Lord, you want us to see that you are the answer. You are the one that helps us continue on through that suffering. Lord, that we need to be leaning into you. So Lord, help us as we comprehend, Lord, all that we've looked at today. We see ourselves in light of your creation, and yet, even in that, we're told that you chose us before the foundations of the world. Just mind-blowing, Lord. And yet, this is what you reveal to us, the kind of love and care you have for us. So Lord, help us to gain perspective, and through that perspective, to have hope, even though we're fault finders, even though we're, we're frail, and we want to throw the towel in many times, or we get embittered. Lord, help us to see that your, your act here with Job was not to humiliate him, but to humble him for the purpose of growth. And Lord, we need to be reminded of, of our place. But we also need to be reminded of your grace. And that we have been taken out of that place of being distant enemies. And we have been brought to the table through your son Jesus Christ who's reconciled us to you in an amazing act of grace and love that took place on the cross. We are so privileged to be called your children. We're so privileged to, to be able to share the Lord's Supper that we're gonna have here just to, to remind ourselves of what it is you've done. Help us, Lord, not to take it for granted and to be reminded of your magnificence, your wisdom, your goodness, even in the midst of what seems to us to be evil. We ask this now in your precious name, amen.